You're listening to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. Hello, welcome. I'm Rebecca. On this episode, I am joined by Dr. Aidan Norrie to discuss the progresses of Queen Elizabeth I. Dr. Norrie will help us understand the reason for her progress, the conditions while traveling, the pageantry, and so much more. So without further ado, Aidan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is likely your first introduction to my listeners, so I'd love it if you could just give them and me a little background on yourself before we begin. So I'm primarily historian of Elizabeth I. Pretty much anything to do with her, I have some interest in. Um, My main interest is in uh, biblical typology, but as part of that, I have a secondary interest in child actors in Elizabethan civic pageantry. They're two very random things that don't necessarily go together, uh, but they're fun, and I like making them come together. I'm a very interdisciplinary historian. I like to think of myself as both a historian and a lit scholar, uh, apart from anything in the early modern period. The distinction between literature and history is quite arbitrary. So anything to do with Elizabeth, who I will refer to as Bay, um, it'll just happen. Either during her life or in the 17th century, I'm there. Well, today we're going to have you chat with us about Elizabeth's progresses, and this is a subject that we have not covered on the show before, and I feel a little bit weak on it, and so I wanted you to come on and kind of fill in the gaps for myself and for the listeners. So since we're all at varying levels of knowledge on history, why don't we just kind of start from the beginning, Aiden, and explain to everybody exactly what a royal progress was and what was the point of one yeah so a progress was is the kind of technical term um for any time a monarch went visiting around their country uh, that's the kind of short version of it but essentially um particularly in the pre-modern period before you know mass communication email but also just photography it was a really important way for people around the country to interact with their monarch. Plenty of people who lived, you know, in the Midlands and the north of England aren't going to get down to London. So the only way for them to interact with power was for the power to come to them. For a good number of the summers in her reign, Elizabeth travelled around mainly the kind of south of England. Um, But it was definitely a way to kind of involve people in the machinery of government in the sense of they're actually experiencing how government worked. Progresses are a a thing that a lot of pre-modern monarchs across Europe engage in. It's not just an English thing. And they were particularly important in times of both crisis and kind of uncertainty. For instance, if there'd been a rebellion um, that had been successfully put down, a monarch might go and visit the rebellious people to kind of stamp their authority slash make them feel extra bad about rebelling. Or they could do an Elizabeth and just avoid them entirely because they were too scared. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, it was basically, uh, you know, the, the court in the pre-modern period was much more mobile than we think of it now. You know, even just in the normal course of a monarch's life or reign, you know, they moved around between palaces and the like. So this is just kind of a extension of that, shall we say. And their subjects, for the most part, those who were not members of court or politics, probably the only time that they had ever seen her was in a picture, not a picture, a painting. 
Yeah, or more than anything, it'll be a coin. Right. Um, that would be the most common way they would have seen. Um, I... You know, because even if we think about, okay, there are plenty of portraits of Elizabeth that, you know, even if there's 500 surviving portraits of Elizabeth, you know, that's not many to be around the country for people to see them. Yeah, that makes more sense. Coins. Could you imagine, though, like all of you, all you've ever seen of her is on a coin and then you get to see her in person for the very first time. I can't even imagine what that would feel like. Yeah, um, it's why, you know, we know that people absolutely thronged to see her. There were always crowds wherever she went. And again, you know, this is because, you know, it's their only way to interact with their monarch. And, you know, if we think about the kind of, you know, the, these people genuinely believe that their monarch was some kind of, you know, God-anointed representative on Earth. <laughs> you know, the monarch is sort of quasi-slash-semi-divine. Um, so you can kind of understand why they'd be so excited. So we know that Elizabeth went on her first progress soon after she became Queen Elizabeth I. I believe it was in 1559. Why did she decide to go on a progress so soon after being crowned? I mean, as I kind of alluded to, uh, progresses are a really, really important way of, uh, of, of literalizing your authority in the sense of you show up as the queen and remind everyone that you're the queen. Um, and it's one of the things I think that both her siblings, her predecessors, both Edward and Mary, did badly was not um, going on progress. And I think Elizabeth realised um, the problems that this caused. Um, it, it doesn't allow the sub your subjects to sort of build up a relationship. Kind of in the same way we think about, you know, Elizabeth II today, plenty of people feel like they know her, even though, you know, at best they may have, sh they may have shaken her hand. Um, so it's a similar thing, uh, trying to make your kind of presence felt, um, but also it's, an, it's a really important way of showing favour. Um, so, you know, who do you stay with? Who do you snub? Um, but, you know, it's very common for progresses to coincide with um, issues that needed to be dealt with or uh, handled. Um, and having the queen there herself um, certainly helped matters. Do we have any idea of a total number of progresses that she went on during her reign? No, and I would really love to know that. Uh, we know that she went on progress kind of for, so she reigns for about 44 years. Um, of those years, she went in summer, she went on progress 23 of those years. Um, so that's a lot, uh, really. Um, compared to both her sister and brother who only went on progress once in their reigns. But, you know, progress, progresses were, it, it kind of depended on the length as well. Um, sometimes uh, she was fleeing the plague in London, so it might be a little bit longer. Uh, but every decade of her reign, she went on multiple progresses that stretched into the months, some of them, which mm. is crazy. Wow. I know Henry VIII went on, Quite a few, but I really feel like, and I haven't done the research, so it's just a gut feeling, but I feel like Elizabeth probably went on more than her father did, too. Yes, she just didn't go as far. Okay, there um, we go. Is the, is the kind of funny thing. The furthest north Elizabeth ever got was, it's either Stafford, um, where I live, actually, 
or um a part of norfolk i would need and i've always i need to like check where on like the lines of latitude just how far she got but you know she never went sort of any further than kind of 150 oh. miles from london um you know she never went to wales never went down to like cornwall or any or the kind of the southwest um so very much kind of in the home counties with occasional excursions around right <laughs> one of the things over the years that's always intrigued me about these progresses is tudor travel and i don't know if you can explain to us aiden but i would really like to know what did traveling with this large group of people look like? What were the conditions like? What were they using? I'd love to hear as much as you can tell us. Uh, the, the short answer is it was slow. Um, it, it took them a very long time. So, for instance, if we think about um, the the progress in 1575, um, when, the one where she got up to Stafford, um, she left uh, on the 23rd of May. Um, and only got back to London on the 10th of October. Um, and, you know, so that's a maximum of kind of 150 miles from London. So obviously, you know, she, she's stopping and seeing people along the way, but you kind of get a sense of just how slowly they're moving. And, you know, she traveled with, you know, huge entourages. Most of her Privy Council came with her so she could keep conducting the business of government while on progress. Um, so they had all their attendants and their attendants had attendants. You know, the funny thing of, you know, servants having their own servants, depending on your rank. And, you know, all of the people who needed to cook and clean. So Elizabeth brought whole, you know, the household staff with her. So, you know, uh, they needed to... You know, the amount of stuff they had to bring with them was kind of incredible. Um, hosts uh, had to provide uh, stuff for the Queen, obviously, but uh, Elizabeth understood um, that this was quite an imposition on her subjects. And so for a Queen who's known for being quite tight with money, um, she was very happy to spend money on progresses. But, you know, we've got records of, like, panicked hosts basically going around and requisitioning food um, from markets to feed Elizabeth, the hordes of people that came with her. Um, it was very common that, you know, the house that the noblemen had, or even the gentry had, uh, wasn't big enough. So they had to convert the barn, um, build tents. So it just kind of gives you a sense of just how kind of big these things were. Um, but also too, they knew that, you know, the queen might stay with them for one, maybe two nights. So they also have to balance you know, they want to impress her and look after her, but they're also only going to see her for one night. So they don't want to do too much. And what a huge honor it would be to have her come stay with you. Yeah. Uh, and that was, the, and that was the, the main thing, the kind of the intimacy it was, it was described as. Um, and what's really, what I find particularly fascinating from a social aspect is the way that people, uh, really emphasized you know that elizabeth had come and stay with them and they got and they got to talk with her privately um whether or not what they talked about privately had any relevance to their life or you know if they made a request of her she more often than not probably said no but even just the illusion of i got to talk with the queen one-on-one -on -one and none of you did um it was an incredible just it was a really important uh, social marker so during their progress, they're going from village to village or home to home. 
how did Elizabeth travel? Did she travel on horseback or in a wagon? Or how exactly did the Queen travel during progress? Um, it, it totally depends, but the answer is kind of both. Um, Elizabeth was a very keen horse rider. Um, she, she liked hunting as well, so she took the opportunity while, while traveling on progress to hunt where she could. Um, but it also depends kind of what business they were conducting. Um, you know, it's very hard to conduct business on a horse. So, you know, a wagon might be slightly more conducive to, you know, responding to the Spanish ambassador or whatever needed to happen that day. Mm, that's what I wanted to ask. How exactly did they conduct business then? Uh, it's quite funny. So they, it gets done, you know, by letter. Um, but people realize just how frustrating it is to try and get anything done um, while Elizabeth is on progress. So the number of courtiers who end up just saying, you know what, it's fine, we'll wait till she's back in London because I can't handle this toing and froing with the letters. Because <laughs> obviously, you know, the plans change on the progress. So, you know, the letter bearers can kind of get not lost necessarily, but, you know, they think they think Elizabeth's going to be in one place and she ends up being in another. So that obviously makes the letters, you know, take longer to get there. Um, and obviously Elizabeth didn't ca didn't travel with her whole Privy Council. Um, that would be ridiculous. So, you know, she needed to get opinions of other people as well. Um, so, yeah, the, the machinery of government still kind of ground on, but it ground on very slowly and <laughs> very uh, <laughs> awkwardly, I think. I can imagine. Now, on these progresses, there were also pageantry and other things to, to welcome Elizabeth, I believe. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, this was the most important bit, I think, for the, the kind of political purpose of, of a progress. Um, you know, the queen visiting the town was obviously a great honour, but the town wanted to to uh, sort of display their loyalty to the queen and kind of show off um, both kind of how perhaps how prosperous they were, um, but also perhaps to convince the queen to interfere um, in a dispute on their behalf. Um, it was very common. Uh, most towns or cities she went, um, she was given a gift, um, often a cup um, or a purse of money, um, generally valued somewhere between kind of 20 and 100 pounds, sort of depending on you know, the size of the town. But a lot of the bigger towns, you know, as you said, did put on quite elaborate pageantry, um, which got more elaborate as her reign went on. Uh, sometimes it was just a case of, you know, a couple of speeches of welcome, but sometimes it was proper, you know, almost uh, court level entertainment. Obviously, some of Elizabeth's own courtiers are hosting her, so it's not surprising that they're putting on um, good shows. But even, you know, the when she visited Bristol in 1574, the pageantry uh, that she was presented with was incredible. Three-day-long uh, mock sea battle, all sorts of just fun and ridiculous things um, that they wanted to show off to their queen. Did you say a mock sea battle? Yes. <laughs> That's crazy. It is. Um, so this uh, uh, progress um, so it coincided when Spain and England were at each other's throats. Um, and so Bristol had been severely affected by the lack of Spanish trade and they wanted to use um, 
the pageants to convince Elizabeth to resume trading relations, as it were. And what what I think is really interesting is we'll, we'll never know uh, for sure, but it kind of seems to have worked because um, after the uh, the Bristol progresses, an agreement was formalised between um, England, uh, England and Spain. It's called the Treaty of Bristol uh, that restored the trade um, and and sought to sort of compensate um, the merchants who'd been uh, who'd been shortchanged by it. So whether or not this wasn't already going to happen, um, it isn't. It is cool to think about that. Actually, maybe these ridiculous. Uh, uh, shows for the Queen actually did something. Was there ever an attempt on Elizabeth's life during one of these progresses? Uh, not that ever sort of got anywhere close to happening, um, but they were definitely planned um, to do it. Um, so some of the years where Elizabeth didn't go on progresses often during the 1580s, um, which I think kind of is obvious given what's going on with everyone trying to bop her off. Um, in the 1590s, there's definitely a couple, um, in, I think it's 1593, the infamous Robert Parsons um, thought that the progress would be a good, a good opportunity to have, her, um, to have her assassinated. Wow. I can't even imagine. It's such yeah. a different time back then, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. But, but also and, you know, the same. It, it, yeah. Well, it's just kind of interesting is if you think about, so, you know, uh, William the Silent um, is the first head of state to be assassinated by a firearm, um, and he's killed in 1584. So it's not like it's implausible. Right. Um, obviously, uh, you'd need to get pretty close. You know, guns don't have the kind of range that they do now. Mm. Um, but not implausible. Okay, is this plausible? And I don't know why I just thought of this, but did Elizabeth have a body double? Could that be plausible? Oh, she didn't. Are we sure? Maybe she did. I mean, that would be great. I mean, now all I'm thinking about is Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Right, exactly. (laughs) Me too. That would be great. I mean, you get into all sorts of dicey trouble there with, like, treason because someone is pretending to be the monarch so there'd be some significant legal issues there but you're right it, it is good to, it, it would be a good kind of solution to the problem so we know she went on these trips um either for political reasons or to get out and to see people and and show them their monarch um, we know the travel was not the greatest um <laughs> on these trips that was one of the things I was curious about, too, was, you know, they're on these trips. They're moving so slowly. Did they take breaks frequently? Like, when did they stop to eat or to use the bathroom? How did that all work out? Uh, basically, whenever the queen needed to is the kind of short answer to it. Obviously, they tried to stay. Yeah. So the, the planning of a progress. Uh, so the Lord Chamberlain undertook that. Um, and it was, you know, an extensive process and you know involved kind of plotting routes and you know in- incorporating comfort breaks and that kind of thing um so uh, they tried to do it as much as possible but obviously what elizabeth said went 
So if she needed a break, they had a break. Imagine having that kind of power. Yeah. That would, that would be pretty nice, I think. I would. And, you know, the other thing, too, is it, it depends, you know, if they're only a couple miles off where they're staying that night, um, they Elizabeth might stop and, you know, keep a small entourage with her and the rest of them might carry on without yeah. her to kind of get there and set up. Right. You mentioned the planning part of it. I imagine it would have taken quite some time to plan out the route. How much warning did these homeowners, the future hosts, get before the monarch would be visiting them? Did they get a couple of weeks or did they get more than that? It depends. Sometimes it was literally a matter of the, we've had to change plans. The Queen's coming tomorrow and we have some very panicked hosts where that's happened. Um, but generally speaking, it was weeks, if not months. Um, as I said, these were highly coordinated and structured uh, events that, you know, were intend, intended to have as much kind of political punch as they could. Um, and, you know, they also understood that, you know, money needed to be raised, you know, you know, so if she was staying in a city, for instance, you know, they needed to raise money to, you know, fix things up and make it presentable for her. Right. Um, so wherever possible, they tried not to spring it on people. Well, that was nice. Um, I'd be, but a part of the problem too is obviously plans change. So there'd be places that have been told that she's coming and then last minute she doesn't come. And so they've spent all that money um, like organizing for her and then she doesn't turn up. Uh, I'm trying to remember, there's a town, there's a city, it's Leicester, uh, and they specifically, they're preparing for Elizabeth, um, and they get, they tax um, the, the citizens based on their income, but they decided to hold off uh, until two weeks before she was due to come, before they collected the money, just in case she didn't, she didn't end up coming. Smart. Yeah. And you mentioned Leicester, now I was just thinking... Was there a progress that we know was one of her favorites or the one that she enjoyed the most? That is an excellent question, and I genuinely don't know. I just think um, about the, the one um, with Robert Dudley. We always hear so much about that one, but were there also other ones where there was huge shows of pageantry and love for the queen, like the party he threw for her? Yeah, so you're talking about Kenilworth in 1575. Yes, exactly. Um, the thing is, uh, for as much as these were a kind of PR exercise for Elizabeth, she didn't actually speak that much. Uh, so even when there are accounts of it, um, we generally don't get, you know, for instance, you know, she might, just, she might say thank you or, you know, say something about this, that the speech was good, but that'll be about it. Um, we're more often to get, um, details of when she um didn't like something like she got quite cranky um when she went to oxford uh in the 1560s uh because they were doing mock disputations and one kind of seemed to imply that she shouldn't be queen and she got quite cranky at that uh, uh, rightfully so yeah <laughs> yeah um so no i mean i would love to find out if there was any that she particularly liked um but as far as i know there's never a She's never explicitly said, oh, yes, going to Kenilworth in 1575, that was the best. Um, that was, I would love to know, though. That was my favorite. <laughs> in writing. Yep. 
Totally. Be great. Well, Aiden, you've really taken us on a journey today to understanding the royal progresses or getting a better understanding of how it all works. What would you like listeners to take away from our conversation today? Ooh. Uh, I think the main thing is understanding that, yes, progresses were slightly sort of frivolous in the sense of it's the already rich monarch going around and, you know, sapping money from her gentry and noblemen and kind of having a bit of a jolly around the country. Um, but they did serve a really, really important political purpose. You know, as we talked about at the beginning, for a lot of her subjects, this was the only opportunity they would ever have to see her and to interact with her. And again, in a, in a period where the monarch is kind of God's representative on earth, um, that's a huge deal. You know, particularly in the case of England, you know, the, the monarch is also the supreme governor of the Church of England, which they are legally mandated by law to attend services of. So that's really important. And, you know, uh, sort of symbols of royal authority are everywhere. You know, proclamations that get read out, uh, are issued in her name. Yeah, she's on the coins. Um, so it's a really, they were a really fantastic and important way of sort of cementing Elizabeth's power to her literal presence. You know, on the one hand, it's a great honor for the queen to turn up and, you know, visit your town. But I, I think there's also an undercurrent there of threat almost. If you misbehave too badly, she could show up and tell you all off, and that could be really embarrassing and awkward for all of you. Uh, so progresses, both fun and frivolous, but also serious and a really, really important part of, of Elizabeth's monarchical image that she was very eager to cultivate. Dr. Aidan Noria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to our newest patrons, Lynn Marie, Sinead, Lynn, Tiguin, Leah, and Johanna. If you love the show and would feel so inclined to show your support as a patron, I would be ever so grateful to you. For details, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty and click become a patron for options. Also, the holidays are near, and now is the time to visit my merchandise shop. Go to TudorsDynasty.com and click Shop in the menu. Up next on Ask the Expert, 16th and 17th Century Fashion with Dr. Sarah Bendel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudors Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudors Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 